at the joy of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me. And the disciples are, surprise, surprise, confused, as they often were, right? They're unsure about what Jesus is really referring to here, and so he further elaborates in verse 20, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is specifically addressing here his crucifixion and death. And it would be during his, this time of his crucifixion and death, the disciples would certainly weep. They would lament at the death of their Messiah. While the world, meaning the world in opposition to Jesus, the wor- those who were opposing Christ, wanted him gone, they would rejoice. But as real as the disciples' sorrow would be, he says to them, your sorrow will turn into joy. And he uses the analogy of when a woman gives birth to a child. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Right? I witnessed my wife give birth four times. It's painful. It's scary. I mean, just as someone, an outside observer, I remember the, when Aiden was, uh, when she went into labor with our first, I was, I was scared. <laughs> And uh, I remember flying down Spruce Street. She's like, whoa, 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 slow down. we got to make it to the hospital, right? But it can be a scary thing, and it's certainly a painful thing. But you got to remember, Jesus is using this analogy at a time before there were hospitals, before there were epidurals, before there were the, the doctors and the sanitary conditions we have today. And so even more so, can you imagine what a painful and dreadful process it was in that time? But Jesus continues, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and what, no one will take your joy from you. Now, a few important truths emerge here about the joy that Jesus gives. So first we see the joy of Jesus is not bound by circumstances. The joy of Jesus is not bound by circumstances. There is sorrow, very real sorrow, when they lose Jesus, right? When he dies and he's buried They're deeply sorrowful, but then there's rejoicing when they see him again after the resurrection. And then he assures them from that point on, no one will take your joy from you. Now, this is significant because after the resurrection, circumstantially, it's not like things would just get better and better after the resurrection. The fact was circumstantially, things would in fact get worse and worse they would begin to be persecuted. They would encounter a lot of trouble, eventually imprisonment and death. But even still, Jesus says, yeah, all that's coming, but you know what? No one will take your joy from you. 
Because the joy of Jesus is not bound by circumstances. You see, for most people in this world, their joy is tied to their circumstances, to something circumstantial. So when I have the status I want, when I'm achieving the success that I want, when my relationships are going great, when I have health, when I have wealth, I have joy. The problem is, circumstances change. And if your joy is tied to things in this world, and everything in this world can eventually be lost, when you lose them, you lose your joy. But the joy of Jesus is not circumstantial. It's a joy that springs forth from knowing and being known by Jesus. And you're never going to lose him, and therefore, you will never lose your joy. Now, this does not mean that our joy fully and completely displaces sorrow in your life. Let me say that again. This does not mean that our joy in Jesus fully and completely displaces sorrow in your life. As if we never experienced sadness or grief or really dark seasons in our lives. That it's somehow wrong if a Christian goes through that. It's somehow there's something wrong with you if you're a believer and you're going through those things. No. Here's what it does mean. Our sorrow, because we still experience sorrow, but our sorrow will never fully and completely displace your joy. Your sorrow will never fully and completely displace your joy. It will always be there, deep within, even if it's mixed with tears. The mother who just delivered her baby is still exhausted. She's still in pain. Her body is still bruised. She still needs healing. It's not, it's not like she has the baby and springs up and just starts dancing, right? doing the gritty in the operating room. <laughs> I mean, she's in pain. Her body is, is wrecked in a lot of ways, but, but there's joy. There's joy in the midst of the pain. There's real joy. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then in 7 verse 4, in all our affliction, Paul writes, I am overflowing with joy. Not, now that the affliction's gone, I'm overflowing with joy. He says, in the affliction, in the midst of affliction, there is still joy that Paul experiences. You see, the world's joy, because it's tied to something in the world that can be lost or that can change, it leads to an either-or experience when it comes to joy and sorrow. 
You either have joy because you have what you want or you have sorrow because you don't have what you want and what you're living for and what you set your heart upon. It's an either or experience. But in contrast, the joy of Jesus, Christian joy can be experienced in the midst of sorrow. It's not either or. It can be both. Because the ultimate source of your joy is not based on circumstances, something that can be lost. It is a joy derived from Jesus, who you will never lose, no matter what. Second, the joy of Jesus, and this is the one that's hard to accept, but the joy of Jesus is often produced out of pain. The joy of Jesus is often produced out of pain. Jesus said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And that phrase, turn into, is very significant. It's very rich and loaded with meaning. You see, Jesus' pain and death doesn't simply precede the joy. Jesus' pain and death produced the joy, the pain of his death, that he became a curse for us, is the very thing that secures us in his life and in his love forever. In other words, simply put, our joy came out of his pain. Without the pain, there would be no joy. For the mother in labor, the pain of her labor is bringing forth, producing the joy of a baby. Without the pain, there would be no joy of new life. For those who are in Christ, this becomes a pattern for our lives. The sorrows we face in life don't merely end at the resurrection. The joy of heaven isn't some consolation prize that's totally disconnected from everything that you went through in this life. That would be like, you know, um, our generation has invented all kinds of things, right? Crazy birth announcements, the gender reveal parties, and this. We come up with all these crazy ideas. You've, I mean, and again, this is a worthwhile one, but you've ever heard of a push gift? It's kind of a modern trend now. It's like when, when women are having a baby, the family or the husband gets a push gift, which is like, let me get you this wonderful gift, a, a, some, a diamond ring or something to just tell you I'm thankful that you went through this and pushed our baby out. That's, you've never heard of this, a push gift? <laughs> I thought it was pretty common. Anyway, it's a thing now. It's popular now. Imagine giving a mother a push gift but not the baby. <laughs> it's like, here's this wonderful gift I gave you. Yeah, yeah, thanks, but where's my baby? That was the point of all this. <laughs> the, the, the baby's my joy here. Thanks for the gift and all, but the point of this and going through all this was for my baby. Likewise, earthly sorrows are turned into transformed into. They are producing for us a meaningful, 
purpose-filled joy. And some of that joy is experienced now, but much of it in eternity. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, your sorrow itself shall be turned into joy, not the sorrow to be taken away and joy to be put in its place, but the very sorrow which now grieves you shall be turned into joy. God not only takes away the bitterness and gives sweetness in its place, but turns the bitterness into sweetness itself. It's the pattern of the cross. And it'll be the pattern for your life. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce puts it this way. Some mortals say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. It's not just that agony ends. It's that the very thing that caused you agony becomes a source of sweetness somehow in an unimaginable but powerful, beautiful, and true way. This is what James is getting at when he, when he makes that crazy statement none of us like reading. <laughs> Consider it pure joy when you're going through trial. What? Consider pure joy. But this is what he's getting at. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's not pointless. Your pain is leading somewhere. It's leading to something. It's leading to serve your eternal joy, an eternal weight of glory, as Paul calls it. And so the joy of Jesus is often produced out of pain. Third, the joy of Jesus is accessed through prayer. Verses 23 to 24, in the day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it that your joy may be full. When Jesus uses the phrase in that day, he's referring to the time after the resurrection. It was the dawn of a new era in redemptive history. And up until that point, Jewish people, of course they prayed to the Father, right? Even in the Lord's Prayer, how does he teach them to pray? Our Father, right? So this is, that wasn't a new concept. That's how they had prayed. They'd always prayed to the Father, but now Jesus says, he directs them to pray to the Father in his name. That's what's new. Why? Because Jesus is the one who's reconciled us to the Father through his cross. He brought us into the family of God and you and I now have access to the throne of the King. Access to heaven's resources not based on our merit but because of Christ and his merit. If I were to use the language of credit, you and I, every human being on this earth, has horrible credit. 
No access to resources. No one's going to loan us anything. We have no access to any. We have horrible credit in our own name. But Christ's credit is perfect. And he has unlimited credit line that you and I can draw from in his name. You are now an authorized user. Here you go. No credit line. Limitless resources. Thank you. Not because of your credit. Your credit's horrible. <laughs> but on the credit of Jesus. When we make use of that tremendous privilege. I know this has been a theme at Renewal. And fittingly so. We just had a congregational retreat on this theme of prayer. I feel like God is enabling me to grow in appreciation, especially these days, of what a tremendous privilege prayer is. And when you make use of that privilege, there's a joy you experience in it. It's exactly what he says in verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus already spoke of this in chapter 15. We studied that. When he called the disciples to what? Abide in me. And we saw how prayer was part of the matrix of abiding. Along with abiding in the word, obeying the word, and prayer. That's the matrix of how you abide. And that results in joy. Part of that joy is the joy of answered prayer. There is a unique, special joy that comes along with that. I'm sure some of us, we have our testimonies of when you've experienced that. You know, in different ways from the pulpit over the past couple months, you've been hearing renewals in a time of transition. We keep sharing that, you know, from when this uh, church, you know, from, went from one church in one location what is our uh, anniversary is 07. And ever since that time, the Lord has been moving us outward uh, with a heart for mission to keep multiplying, right? And so what began as one church in one location, we planted Renewal Mainline, our, our sister church. Right before pandemic, we go to Renewal Center City and Renewal West Philly. This Easter, uh, Folks from the Center City campus are planning a church out in South Jersey in the Cherry Hill area. These are all wonderful things to celebrate. We're amazed to see the way in which God has blessed this vision. But with that comes a lot of change. A lot of good and necessary cultural change has happened in the church. A lot of change is coming in terms of personnel, staffing, leadership. These are all things we need to think through. And I, I share all this to say, I hit a point a few months back of just my mind swimming. And I, brought, I was honestly brought to my knees because what I felt was this. All these years of ministry experience, everything I've learned all these years, and as long as I've been at this church, God, I don't have answers. This is complicated. This is really hard. And you promise, if any of you lacks wisdom, that we should pray 
and that you would give generously without finding fault. So that's exactly what I did. I was like, God, I don't have answers. I need wisdom. And within a week, I get two separate phone calls. Right? One, this brother calls and says, hey, uh, so I'm an executive coach. I coach people in ministry. And I, I really, you know, I want to share something with you because what happened was I have donors who are backing me. And they basically said, we want you to think of a leader in the city, a minority leader in the city, who you could coach, who you have a relationship with. And he says, I want to coach you, fully funded for a year. <laughs> yes! Thank you, Lord. Within that same time frame, an old friend of mine who I've mentioned I'm getting another degree, he was the admissions, he is the admissions director of Covenant Seminary, our denomination seminary. I had thought about doing a degree at some point in my life, but I was like, I'm so busy and so much going on in church, which I've been saying for the past 13 years. <laughs> and this friend calls and says, listen, this cohort has already closed, actually. Like the group is set for this next calendar year, but I was praying and I felt the Lord stirring me to call you. Because as I looked at this cohort and, and as you have shared some of what you've shared, I think this is the right fit for you. And I said, hun, we have two days <laughs> to decide. <laughs> she's a slow decision maker. But it was one of those moments where she's like, this is of God. In that very first class, all the readings we did are all about exactly what we've been through and are going through as a church. Friends, my heart exploded with joy because it was God assuring me through prayer that his promises are true. But more than just the specific joy of answered prayers, more broadly, it's, it's the joy of knowing you have that kind of access. One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes or images that he's put in my head, he says this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. Child of the king. Who dares wake me? Well, if it's his child, <laughs> come on in, kid. Maybe a little annoyed, but you're my, you're my child. Come on in. And he says, we have that kind of access. This is what Jesus is expressing in verses 26 to 27. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus is saying... You don't have to act like that shy sibling that, that goes to the other sibling who mom and dad seem to favor to say, yo, you ask them, right? They'll say yes to you, Jesus. Jesus is saying, you don't need to do that. He says, verse 27, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
For those who have trusted Christ, the Father now loves you with the same love he has for Jesus. You have the same access. And he wants you to make use of it. This truth of the kind of access that we have through prayer is part of what brings us such joy and brings us comfort when your prayers are not answered in the way that you wish they were answered. Because you can be sure that my heavenly Father adores me. And whether he gives or chooses not to give, whether he answers in the way that I'm hoping or not, I have no doubt he only ever wants what's best for me. Finally, let's look at the peace of Jesus. Verse 29 and 30, the disciples express, since Jesus is speaking less figuratively and more plainly, they think they truly get it, right? They're claiming to have a degree of understanding and faith that they don't actually have. So Jesus responds in verse 31, do you now believe? Okay, you guys are saying you get it now? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He's referring to the the time when he gets arrested and the trial begins and his ultimate crucifixions. All of the disciples deserted him. They all ran away in fear. Peter denied even knowing him. They all abandoned Jesus. And then in verses 32 to 33, he says, Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus brings up their failure. Not out of some kind of resentment. Not to heap guilt on them. Yeah, some friends you are. (laughs) Let me tell you what you're going to do. Right? No, he doesn't do that. He does, he shares this to reassure them. He's conveying to them, look, serious trouble is coming. Some really hard things are headed your way, including beyond just the time of his crucifixion. Some really hard things are coming your way because in this world, you will have tribulation. As long as you are on this earth, as long as you're living in this world, you're going to have trouble. There will always be something, whether trouble brought upon by because of your faith, right? That was the passage last week. Persecution, right? Whether it's trouble brought upon because of your faith or trouble brought upon by yourself because of your own failures. Or trouble brought upon by others who are just out to get you. Or troubles from sickness, troubles from accidents and disasters. Right? The counterpart of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The unholy counterpart of it is the Trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Which take turns bringing trouble upon our life. But as sure and real as our troubles are. Jesus says, in me, 
you have a sure and real peace. How? How do you get it? Well, it's right here. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. You have to believe the things that Jesus said to live in that peace, to enjoy that peace. To begin with, this means basically, at a basic level, it starts with you got to believe the gospel or you'll never enjoy the peace of Christ. You have to believe he is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God who took on flesh to live the life we all should have lived and failed to live and took the punishment we deserve. He died the death we deserve, taking the judgment that should have fallen on us. He took it in our place. So it starts with that. But there are many more things he said to them during this upper room discourse. That's what he's talking about. When he said, these things I've said to you, he's talking about everything I just explained to you guys, I explained it all so that you could be at peace. What are some of those things that he spoke of? Chapter 14, verse 2. I am going, I'm going to leave you, but I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And you're, you know the way there. You're going to have access to that place because you know me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Chapter 14, 6. Jesus promised that the Helper would come, the Holy Spirit who would literally dwell in us so that you will never truly be alone. Chapter 14, 7. And the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and help bring to remembrance all that I said to you, 1426, and not only will the Holy Spirit be at work in you, the Holy Spirit will be at work in the world. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Chapter 16, verse 8. And as we abide in Jesus, we can bear much fruit for him. He tells the disciples at numerous points, what we just talked about, all the access they now have to the Father through prayer, such that ask boldly, ask often in his name. He assures them, 1633, he has overcome the world. Everything that is in opposition to Jesus will ultimately be defeated. That's what he's talking about. All these things I've said to you so that in me you may have peace. Now, the disciples had heard all these things. The disciples said, yes, we believe those things when he said them, and they meant it. Yet what happened? When the trouble came, they scattered, they fled, they left Jesus. They were not at peace. They did not take heart. Right? Another way to translate take heart, I have overcome the world, is be courageous. They were not at peace. They did not take heart. They did not show courage. They were terrified. And what that tells us is that in order for the peace of Jesus, which he has purchased for you, but to be truly experienced, and this is true for joy as well, there needs to be 
a continual marinating on, returning to the things that he has said. Draw on those truths by faith. faith. Ask the Holy Spirit. Help them come to remembrance. Bring them to remembrance. Spirit, drive it deeper into my heart. Everything that Jesus has said. When the trouble comes. So, when you feel as though you're abandoned, you feel alone, you find peace as you go back to what he said. You are not. Christ experienced abandonment, so you would never be. We experience peace in knowing when this world feels so out of our hands, and it is out of our hands, so out of control, we come back to that place and we say, no, Jesus, it is crazy. This world is crazy, but Jesus has overcome the world. He rules. He reigns. He will accomplish his good purposes. He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The Holy Spirit brings conviction in this a seemingly impossible mission we've been given as his church to declare the good news, the seemingly impossible mission of the hardest of hearts receiving this gospel, it's not about you anyway. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to bring the conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that will change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. At times when we look into our own hearts, we see the stubbornness of our sin. We see our addictions and we're tempted to quit. We're tempted to give in to despair. What are we to do? We are to go back to the truth. Christ has overcome not just the world, but my flesh as well. And I find joy and courage in that to keep on fighting the good fight. When the reality of suffering drives you and tempts you to despair, you find joy in knowing this is not meaningless. In fact, my sorrows will be transformed into joy. And even what the enemy meant for evil, Christ is able to turn it for my good. He's overcome Satan. When our homes in this world are tough places to be. Whether it's because of the brokenness of relationships in your home or whether it's because of the brokenness of the place that you're living in. We find deep joy and comfort knowing this is not my ultimate home. Christ has prepared a place for me. And I always have a home with Him. Take the things that Jesus has said. And this goes back to what we talked about in 15. Because there's a unity here. There's a reason. This was all one speech. Take the things that Jesus said. Marinate on them. Return to them again and again and again. Speak them into each other's lives. In that moment when you feel the fear. When you feel the worry. When you feel the despair welling up. Go back again and again to what he has said. Consider Jesus himself. What did he do when trouble came his way? Satan came at him full force in the wilderness. 
What did he do? He drew upon the word. It is written. Man will not live on bread alone, but by every word. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Time and time again, how did he face the troubles that came his way? By calling and drawing upon the word. He's literally hanging on the cross and he's quoting Psalm 22, Psalm 31. Friends, how much more for us when troubles come your way? Ask the Holy Spirit, because that's why he dwells in you. Holy Spirit, would you bring to remembrance all that Christ has said? Don't trust in your own perspectives. There's a temptation. This came out in a book I was reading. There's a temptation to go back to negative scripts in your life. A lot of these negative scripts were formed when you were a child. You try to make sense of the world. This is happening because I'm unlovable. This is happening because the only way to prove my worth is X, Y, Z. Oh, this, if this were, it, it, it would have happened this way if I only did. And we get caught in these like negative scripts, negative narratives that you just made up in your own head. And it will lead you nowhere but despair. Go to the true script. Marinate on it. Root your heart in it again and again. In that moment, you feel the fear. You feel the despair welling up. Take the promises, what Jesus has said, and in prayer, drive it into your heart. And in so doing, the more and more you learn to do that, I guarantee, because it's Jesus' guarantee, the more and more you will walk in peace. The more and more you will walk in joy. The more and more you will walk in courage in spite of all that's happening around you, even in the midst of sorrow. Let's pray. Let's take a moment in closing and turn to the